You may be seated. Good evening, celebration. It's kind of weird. That's the first time I have said that. Good evening, celebration. It's always been good morning, so that's something new for me. And I've been practicing that all afternoon. Did I do okay? All right. Well, amen. Uh, we'll be in uh, Luke's gospel tonight, as already been said, uh, chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And um, just studying this, uh, getting prepared for this, um, I think we're going to take a, a little bit different turn. I'll talk about that in just a few moments. Um, but I want to ask you a question. Is there a time in your life um, where you've ever been just angry and maybe even rage had kind of overtaken you? I mean, you're just, ah. I tell you, if you've had kids, you probably know what I'm talking about, right? I, you know, love them. Oh, they're sweet. But there are times when you want to reach over and just pinch their heads off. Am I right? Get it, witness? Any witness here? Amen. That's right. <laughs> it happens. I remember one time uh, when my daughter was 15. Now, she's 30, like one now, but she was 15, just getting her license. We were at First Baptist Hilliard, and, um, you know, kids are getting licensed, and uh, she come up after Sunday evening service and said, hey, uh, a bunch of the youth are going over to uh, Dairy Queen tonight, and uh, Daniel, you know, he got his driver's license like three weeks ago, like that was supposed to comfort me. And uh, I would really like to go with them. We want to go to Dairy Queen. And, you know, after, boy, I was trying to run through my head, what can I possibly maybe even stretch the truth with and deny her, you know, not let her do it. But I said, you know, I, I kind of trusted the kid a little bit. So I said, yeah, go ahead and go. And just remember the curfew. Okay, Daddy, so off they go. And, you know, we know how this is when it's happened to you. I mean, instant worry the minute they leave. I mean, they're teenagers, are going, you know, all the things. You know how I know about teenagers? I was one. And I'm like, oh, goodness, they could be like me. This could really be bad. But, uh, you know, 10, it gets close to 10. You know, you kind of start acting like you're watching TV, but you're like, man, I'm sure would like for my baby to be home. And then 10.01 hits, and you're like, all right, I'm aggravated. And then every minute goes an hour. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about, every hour. And, and now, you know, now I'm getting concerned. It's, I, I was telling Debbie, I said, you know, at 10.15, and she's not home, I'm going on the road. Because I'll tell you, the worst thing starts going in your mind, right? I mean, the most horrible thing that you can imagine starts running through your mind for me, in that area, U.S. 1 between Folkestone and, and, uh, and Hilliard, there's a couple bridges over some creeks, and I think, oh, my goodness, they flipped over upside down in the creek, and the water's rising, you know, all that, and he's concerned. In just a few minutes, I'm getting ready to go to the car, and all of a sudden, here, boom, the door shuts outside. And now all this love and concern and worry somehow instantaneously moved over here to, I am going to choke her. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. But anyway, she didn't even have a clue what she was coming into. Um, and in all honesty, I unloaded. Now, I didn't use any four-letter superlatives, but I do remember things like, uh, you are grounded to your 21. You will never, ever in your life eat at Dairy Queen. It's over. Don't even ever ask. And, he, I mean, and, and she knew where I was. Now, I don't get angry that much, but I, it was fear. It was scared, and, uh, and, and, and I was just, I was really aggravated. And, uh, and, and all she needed to say was, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir, no, sir. Go to your room. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's what she was waiting for. And, and in all honesty, I did apologize later. I went back because, you know, I was really, I mean, I was just overboard angry. And then, um, you know, so I just worried because, you know, curfews at tune. She said, well, Daddy, uh, that was a ten, on a weekends is 11. I'm like, then you know what? <laughs> right back up again because school nights, right? The night before school night, you got to be in for 10. You're 15, 16 years old. That's what the rule was kind of in our house. There's nothing much to do in Hilliard. It was pretty safe. You just go to friends' homes. But I bring that point out to try to hope to get you to identify this idea of being so angry, uh, so filled with wrath and bitterness about something, and it could be anything, um, is really what is happening in the text here tonight. If you look, as Jesus preaches his first sermon in his hometown, um, to his own people, 
some, we're going to go through a lot of this, but look at verse 28. After the people had heard all this, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Now, some translations say wrath. Some translations say fury. But you get the idea some of his hometown folks are just angry over what they just heard. Now, kind of building a little context here about the author, because we always want to try to, to harvest these principles out of God's Word. We want to understand the original, what the Holy Spirit moved the original author to speak to the original audience. We need to know Luke was a Gentile. Uh, he was not one of the disciples, one of the apostles. He was a close associate of uh, Paul and some of the ministries he went on. So he was a Gentile. The book is primarily written to Gentiles. At the very beginning of the gospel, Luke even says, Old Theophilus. Now, there's a little debate about who this person was, Theophilus. Some, the, the name literally means friend of God. So some think Luke was talking to the general, um, primarily to the Gentile audience at large as friends of God. But it kind of steers you away from that when it says, Oh, excellent, Theophilus. So really, most scholars come down that Luke was primarily writing this two-volume work, by the way, uh, to a, a, a person in authority uh, within the Roman Empire or within the government somehow to give an account of the life of Jesus. Now, he was an educated man. He was a physician by trade. Um, so he set out to write in his first volume all that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. If you turn to the book of Acts, that's his second volume of work, and he continues to write to Theophilus saying, hey, I'm going to continue writing you about this Jesus and all that happened here in the early church and what the Holy Spirit did as the gospel was, 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 was being spread throughout the known world. So that's a little background on Luke. Now, about the passage we're looking at tonight in Luke where Jesus' sermon we looked at other Gospels. Matthew and Mark also cover this account, but not as quite in detail. But you do get these things from Matthew and Mark. I just highlighted a few words. Uh, as the crowd heard Jesus preach, they were amazed. Both Gospels share that. And then they were offended. Jesus said, a prophet is not honored in his hometown. And then finally, the people were filled with unbelief about what they heard Jesus say. This is why Luke is very important, because we get the context of what Jesus preached. The other Gospels just say Jesus preached, and the people were amazed, offended, and they didn't honor him, and they ultimately did not believe him. So we go to Luke, and we get an exact idea of what, um, what, what was it that stirred these people in such a way uh, to cause them to experience this wrath. Luke also wants us to understand that he's primarily writing this gospel to show the Gentiles that this Messiah, this Savior, is not only for the Jewish uh, folks. Uh, it is for all the folks. It is for the entire world. This gospel is good news for everyone. And this fits with even what the Gospel of John says. The Bible says Jesus came to his own, and those were his own did not receive him. So again, to fit within Luke's uh, primary goal here is to proclaim, to set an orderly account of the life of Jesus, to also show right here from the beginning this gospel is not only for the Jews. As a matter of fact, they uh, mostly rejected him, and it is for the Gentiles. Now, that is where we're going. That is where Luke is going. However, comma, I would kind of take a little bit different approach on this. Now listen, as we preach, as we study, we're always looking for what? Authorial intent. Again, what did the Holy Spirit move Luke to write that he wanted the original audience to understand? And I think what I just shared with you was some of those things. The gospel's for us. The gospel's for the whole world. Here you see, he introduced himself, he preached to the Jews that he was the Messiah, they rejected him, and now Jesus used two uh, illustrations from the Old Testament that essentially says the gospel's for all people. 
But what I want to do tonight is, is, is look at this first century synagogue. Look at this first century synagogue and see why was it they were so offended. Why was it that the words they heard and the interpretation Jesus gave to Isaiah 61 so struck them that it just drove them absolutely crazy with anger to the point that they wanted to kill Jesus? Now, it's kind of amazing because I guess I could say something here that might make a lot of you mad, but I don't think too many of you are going to take me out to, to Minor Road out here and throw me in front of a bus for it. You see, that, that's the rage these people were experiencing. So let's kind of dive in it from that point. Like I say, it's not necessarily what I believe Luke was writing, but it's an observation of a synagogue. And really I want to do is I want to compare our church today with possibly what we would have done if we had heard this message for the first time from Jesus. But more closer than that, our church, I want to look more at what we individually, how we individually would have responded to this message. I'm going to try to draw some parallels that I think we can see here, uh, even from the Scripture. The first thing from verses 14 through 22, I think we see that this was not uh, the Jesus that they were seeking. What they heard and what Jesus explained was not the Jesus they were expecting. Before we dive into those verses, let's back up a little bit and talk about a synagogue service. Everybody wants to know about a synagogue service, right? Well, you know, it's really not a whole lot different than what we have today. Uh, the faithful would gather, gather together. Uh, they would pray. Um, they would sing a psalm or read a psalm. And then they would go to Deuter Deuteronomy 6, which they wouldn't have to look up. They had known. And they would have said the Shema. Now, Shema is a Hebrew word for, for hear. And it's the very first word in that Deuteronomy chapter 6 passage where it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you should love him with all your body, mind, soul, and strength. Everything that you are is going to respond with love towards God. So they would quote that, and then they would go through a series, sometimes up to seven folks, where they would hand a scroll or the book of the law, and an honorable man within the community, a Jewish man, would read that scroll, and now, unlike us, is once he read that scroll and everybody would sit down, or everybody was standing up, everybody would sit down, and so would the speaker. And then the speaker would expound upon uh, that scripture he just read. And then they would have a book of the prophet uh, that would be given to a speaker. He would read a portion of that, uh, uh, of that scripture, and then he would sit down and expound upon it. Then it might go to the other writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs. Again, they would read it, and they would expound upon it. So you kind of, that's, that's kind of the order of a synagogue service. But what is important, when Jesus entered a synagogue, as was his custom, he was considered by his own folks an honorable guy because he got to read the scroll. So let's kind of read this real quickly. Uh, and and, and the, starting in verse uh, 17, And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Most often... Uh, the one who uh, managed the synagogue would hand the scroll. But here it definitely says Jesus found his place to a certain verse. Isaiah 61 is what he's going to read from. And he said this, he opened the book. He, Jesus found the place that was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who were oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled, and you're hearing. 
And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? The other gospels would say something to the effect that, uh, do we not know this man? Is not his brothers and family here with us? So what's going on here? Um, Jesus simply preached a sermon, but look at the response of the synagogue. I can't help but think what it must have been like whenever Jesus said that. Today, this prophecy is fulfilled in me. I believe you could have heard a pin drop. I believe you could absolutely heard a pin drop. Within this congregation, uh, the people had messianic hopes. This scripture here had an immediate context in Isaiah chapter 61, but the entire audience, all Israel, would have known this to be a messianic text. So Jesus now proclaims, uh, to be this long-awaited long Messiah. How can we explain this text? The people knew this to be a Messianic text. The problem is, When Jesus read that scripture and said, I am he, there was a conflict. There was a Jesus they were looking for that would do a specific thing for them. Now, we know the Old Testament speaks of two saviors, one who would come as a suffering servant and one would come as the Lion of Judah. Now, we got to be a little sympathetic because at the time, The Jews were under Roman oppression. I mean, Rome ruled with a rod of iron. They were in the promised land, but they were not in the promised land, if you know what I'm saying. They were there, but there was, they would probably say there's this infestation, these Gentile folks here, and we got the Roman Empire oppressively taxing us left and right, and they're very oppressive just by their presence in our land. So what they really wanted from the Messiah... If you allow me to speak a little bit of Nassau County redneck, they wanted the Messiah to be this guy that would show up and kick some Roman butt and restore the kingdom of David. That would take someone of great power, someone of great authority, someone with great ability. And it mentioned here, after they were amazed with his speech and what he said, I think it started to settle down as, wait a minute, he says he's the Messiah? but we know this guy. We know his family. As far as we know, there's been no special training for him. How can he possibly be the Jesus that we are looking for? So that began the rage in their hearts because he was not the Jesus that they were looking for. Now, you know, I would like to say this problem is distant from us, but you know it's not. I know as you share your faith and you talk with people, generally, People want to know more about Jesus when? When they're in a time of crisis. You know, when everything is going well and is bye-bye apple pie and everything is just cool, you don't have a need in the world. Or at least, let me put it this way, you don't think you have a need in the world. But generally, when people find themselves in crisis, they are looking for anything. And they're even looking for a Jesus to come and solve what they believe to be their greatest crisis. And you can fill in the blank here. I have a marriage crisis. I have a 
crisis with my children. I'm going to start taking them to church and see if Jesus can do something for them. I have a financial crisis. Do you think if I come to Jesus, he would solve my financial problem? Let me ask you this. Compared to the destination of your eternal soul, what crisis can compare with where your soul is going to be? Jesus says this. The Gospels tell, if you live a life as a pauper here, but you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, guess what? This short duration that we live on earth is not going to compare with eternity with Christ. No matter what crisis you think you're going through now, it doesn't compare with what Christ did on the cross to buy you back, that you might have eternal life with him. Just like this first century synagogue, we want a Jesus to come here to solve what we perceive to be our immediate problem. We're going to reject this one of these locals who is this local person who is claiming to be the Messiah. But don't we have the same problem? Don't you experience when you share your faith? The hardest person I've ever had to even have a conversation about Jesus is someone who seemingly has no problems. And when I try to share with them, you're, you're omitting your greatest problem, the eternal destiny of your soul. The gospel, what a beautiful story. What a beautiful story in what God did to solve our greatest problem, the distance that remains between man and God, the broken fellowship that exists between man and God. Because of what Christ did on the cross of Calvary, our biggest problem and you would agree with me to really the biggest problem is where are we going to spend eternity? Would you agree with that? And I just say amen. That's our biggest problem. Everything else just is small in comparison to that. We need to embrace the Jesus of Scripture. And you know, I may die this week. I may live. I may become a millionaire. Maybe some uncle I don't know anything about. I may be laid off and find myself in poverty. I may be well this whole week. I may be sick. I may hurt. Boy, as I get older, that's happening more and more often. I don't even know how it happens. It just happens. But you know what? That's small in comparison with the joy that's set before me, knowing that no matter what crisis I face this week, God is still sovereign. The Jesus I serve has still a place for me in eternity. This was not the Jesus they were seeking. They were seeking one with power, but you know it's not only the Jesus they were seeking, it's not the word they wanted to follow. Look at verses 23 and 24 again. Jesus says this. Now listen, what's happening here? He has spoke the scripture. He has sit down and said, I am the Messiah. And many said, yep, boy, he speaks very well, but wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now Jesus is looking into the hearts of his audience. He says this, and he says to them, no doubt. You will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, uh, do here in your hometown as well. And then Jesus goes on, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Jesus is reading their hearts. Now he says this word, uh, he said, no doubt you guys are saying, uh, physician, heal yourself. A common proverb today, but not necessarily, it's not found in scripture. Two things it can mean is you need to know yourself. Physician, heal yourself. 
You need to know yourself. Now, that kind of fits in what Jesus preached. You say you're the Messiah. Listen, we see your family. You need to know who you really are. But it doesn't really fit the context because what comes after that, he says, what we've seen you do in other cities, now do in your hometown. So it better fits the idea of just what it says. Physician, heal yourself. You're able to heal others. When you are ill, you come and heal yourself. And what they're saying is we have heard you do great and mighty things in other communities. Now come and show us. Now come and do it here. Really being critical of what they even heard about Jesus doing in other communities. And when he goes on, he talks about the prophet not being honored except in his own country. We're going to talk about that in just a few moments. But uh, uh, this kind of confuses me a little bit as well. Has anybody ever told y'all to use your sanctified imagination? You ever heard that before? Well, I'm going to ask you to employ it. What I mean is, uh, this is the Sunday night crowd. Hey, everybody, the follower of Christ here, amen? Now, our hearts have been regenerated. And, and what I want you to do is kind of imagine with some things with me. And the reason I'm asking you to imagine, because Scripture is really silent here. We don't know about Jesus' early years. We really don't. We know about 12 years old, right? He was in the temple. But we don't really know about his teenage years. We don't know about his early adulthood. But what we do know is that Jesus was without sin. Now, what would that look like in this community when Jesus went out just to hang out with the guys or talk with the guys or run with the teenagers? You know, one of the things is mothers often say when the streetlights come on, that means you come in. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but let's just pretend like there were streetlights even back then. And uh, guess what? The streetlights come on and Jesus said, well, I must go home. Mom required me to be home. And you know how teenage boys would be, right? Let's do one more inning. Let's just do one more inning. No, my mother said, so I must obey. Now, I'm trying to build a case for how Jesus had to have stood out in his own community. Can you imagine sharing something with Jesus, even as a teenager, and him sharing you comforting words from Scripture, being able to speak to you with the Word of God, ministering uh, even as a teenager, as a young adult? Now, we know he didn't begin his ministry until he was 30, but just kind of as he's reaching out, uh, 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 he would have just stood out in his community. Uh, much like someone uh, that maybe you know. I mean, at this church, we kind of look around and we set aside elders because there seems to be some maturity about them. They seem to know Scripture pretty well. They can provide good, sound, biblical counseling, kind of set those apart. Well, Jesus would have been that extraordinaire. I mean, every one of your elders are fallen people and prone to sin. Jesus was never that way. Now, why am I saying that? Why am I asking you to imagine that? Because I believe it to be true. That's, Jesus would have been that person. But now when he stood up in the synagogue among his own people and read this messianic text and he says, I am the Messiah, you would expect these things to happen. Oh, now that explains everything. That explains why he always had a word of comfort from the Scripture. That's why he was always obedient even to his parents. That, it explains, you would have thought it would have been an aha moment, like, oh, that's it. And it would immediately turn to worship of the Messiah. He has come. He is the one. It's that aha moment. Kind of like when you went through algebra, when you first started, it said 2x equals 4. How is 2x equal 4? And then your teacher sits down, well, if you just abide both sides by 2, now x equals 2. And you know what you have? You have that, oh, now I understand. Guys, don't look like me like a calf looking at a new gate. I mean, have you ever been mystified by something, and once you get all the facts, you sit there and you go, oh. Has anybody in this entire congregation ever had an aha moment where 
Okay, thank you. I'm not lost. But I feel like that's what should have happened in this synagogue. It explains this young man that grew up in our midst, who was always there to serve and to minister and speak a, a good word in a right time to folks to comfort us. But it wasn't. It wasn't an aha moment. It was a rejecting time. What does that mean for us today when we try to look at our congregation against that first century synagogue? We've had people leave this church because Mike stepped on my toes. He called out sin, and I'm not going to let it go. And they're mad at him. You know how silly that is? Kind of reason this through this with me. The newspaper comes out tomorrow. There's an article about an event in Fernandina. It was something tragic, okay? So several of us get together. That makes me so mad. Let's go to the reporter's house and beat him up. Think about it. Let's go to the reporter's house and beat him up over person A. Maybe let's just say person A hurt person B. And the reporter just covered it. Yeah, he really hurt him really bad. And he was laughing about it when it was all over. That makes me so mad. Let's go beat the reporter up. It's okay to laugh. I, I, I wanted that to be funny. Thank you. Thank you. It makes no sense, does it? The reporter did nothing but do what? Report an event that happened. You know, when my brother stands up here and preach week after week, it comes after hours of prayer, hours of study, and he will say this, if he has done it right, if he has captured the authorial intent, and harvested out those principles of the Word of God, and made application, and it happened to hit us home, you know what we should do? We should say, my battle's not against my brother, pastor. My, I, my battle's against God. What I thought all along has been wrong, based on what Scripture says. So what needs to happen is what? I need to repent and say, oh God, renew my mind. Give me the grace to walk in this way now that I know honors you. Oh, Lord, I have felt this way about this issue for so long, but my brother just preached a word that really clarified my feelings about this or is sin. Oh, God, forgive me. I repent of that. Adjust my feelings. Give me the grace that, that, to understand that and walk in a way that honors you. The whole purpose of biblical preaching is for transformation of life that we might look more like Jesus Christ, like we might conform to the image of the one who has saved us and redeemed us. It's not a time to walk away mad. It's a, a time to hear, allow the Holy Spirit to do its personal, uh, uh, personal work in our own life that we might even be transformed more and more and more. I know many times when I pray up here, whether we're dismissing, and I ask the Lord, let this, the experience we've had in worship and the word we've heard cause us to walk away from here walking a little closer to Jesus than we come in. You've heard me pray that before. It is a prayer because that is what we all kind of come here for. God, continue to change me. Continue to speak to my heart. Allow me to confess sin. Allow me to repent. Allow me and give me the grace to walk in a way that's even closer than I was when I came in. That's the desire here in this first century synagogue. Guess what? This was not the word they wanted to follow. And Jesus called them out. And we had that same issue. So not only was Jesus uh, not the man they wanted to follow, but it was not the word they wanted to hear. And here is the last point. It's not the work 
they're willing to accept. If we look at verse 25 through 30, there's something very uh, interesting here. Jesus calls up two uh, Old Testament prophets that the people were not only familiar with, but they loved, admired. I mean, it was a vital part of their history. But Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, verse 25, but I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel. Now remember, he's talking to a Jewish audience. He said There's many, there were many widows in Israel. In the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. What is he saying? Guys, back in the days of Elijah, and y'all remember that was also in the days of uh, that sweet woman Jezebel. What a precious person. But Elijah the prophet was not sent to someone of Israel during that time of famine, to a widow of Israel, was sent to a widow who was a Gentile. And y'all remember that. I'll give you the verses if you want to look it up later. That's 1 Kings chapter 17 uh, in verse 1 is where it starts. And also the next person is Naaman. is uh, 2 Kings chapter 5 verses 1 through 14. Very similar story. Jesus goes on to preach. There were a lot of people in Israel. There were a lot of Jews that had leprosy. But Elisha uh, did not go to any of them. He went to a Syrian commander, Naaman, and guess what? He said, if you'll just go dip yourself in the river seven times, the river Jordan seven times, uh, you'll be clean of this leprosy. Well, a little different story, whereas the widow pretty much just trusted Elijah right off the get-go. And y'all remember that account as well, right? You remember that story? Uh, uh, man, she, uh, Elijah shows up, he's hungry, and basically, hey, get, make me some pancakes. Now listen, I'm going to kind of King Jimmy this a little bit, okay? Go make me some pancakes and bring them back. I'm a little bit hungry. She said, well, you know, I was just going up to gather me some sticks, and I was going to take the last little piece of flour I have here, and I was going to go make my son and I pancakes, and we're going to die. And he said, well, would you make them for me anyway? And she trusted, and she did. And guess what? Every morning she went to get flour out of the little Tupperware thing, you know, like you have at the house. No, I'm kidding. It wasn't like that, but it's similar. And every day we went there, the same amount was in as was there yesterday. There was a continuous replenishing. And then her son comes sick unto death, and she went to Elijah, and God uh, rose that boy from, from, from the dead. Did, did that great and marvelous work because of her faith and trust in the work of God through Elijah. Now, Amon was a little bit different. He said, this is silly. Don't I have rivers in my own city? Why do I have to go to the Jordan? So he was going home all mad, but he had a good friend. He said, you know, it's interesting because if he would ask something great of you, like, you know, give me a, a couple thousand dollars in gold or, I'm kind of paraphrasing here a little bit. In other words, you do something. You would have done anything he said, but all he asked you to do is go in the Jordan River and just duck yourself seven times. So he talked him into it and he did it. And guess what? He was cleansed. Well, what's the point of all this? And Luke's point is, even in the Old Testament, the gospel was not meant to be reserved only for the Jews. And I'm just going to pick out a couple of texts I want you to walk with me through and just kind of see this, and, and, and we're going to talk about that some. Genesis chapter 12, I know many of y'all are familiar with this. Uh, turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 records the account of the calling of um, Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great. And so shall you be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. 
And listen to this. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All families of the earth will be blessed. It was God's intent from the very beginning, from the fall, to provide a redemptive plan for all people. Turn with me real quick, or if you want, or you can listen. It's uh, um, 2 Chronicles 6.23. Now, listen, I am just, I am cherry-picking the Old Testament. There are a lot of verses in the Old Testament that alluded to the fact that God wants all men to come uh, uh, to a saving knowledge, to a redemptive knowledge. This is a very important event in the life of Israel, the dedication of the temple. Uh, you remember after the book of Judges that uh, Brother Mike's preaching through, there rose up Saul the king and then David and then his son Solomon. Solomon was allowed to build the temple. Now everything's ready and they're dedicating it. And Solomon sets up an altar and he is praying a prayer of dedication for this temple. Now there are a lot of cool things he said in there for the people of Israel. But listen to what he said uh, for those who are not of Israel. This is a dedication of the temple. This is uh, uh, 2 Chronicles 6, 32. Uh, Solomon prays. And concerning the foreigner who is not from your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your great namesake and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray toward this house, then hear from heaven from your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name." This is Old Testament, but yet there seems to be within the heart of God a desire for all people to know there's the possibility or the potential of redemption. Now, how, how did this kind of flesh out as we look at the Old and New Testament? I, it just seems to me in the Old Testament, God calls out initially Abraham who developed into the nation of Israel and trusted them with the law and trusted them with, 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 with the covenants, with the sacrificial system, with the temple. And, and it was meant that they would be a people like a city on a hill that, that Jesus talks about in Matthew that would, that, that would be exalted, that would be worshiping God, that would be living in obedient uh, relationship with God. And others throughout the world might see this and might come and might come to fear the Lord God of Israel. So you see almost like an invitation, come, come. But then we move to the New Testament, and the redeemed people of God, though who has been saved uh, by, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, what is the thing that God's doing now? Go. They didn't come, so now go tell them of this redemptive plan. I just think that's a beautiful act, a beautiful demonstration of someone who is trying to restore a broken relationship, not only with his own people, but to people all over the world. We know of uh, New Testament. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, 9, there's, Peter writes uh, that it's not God's desire that any would fall, that all would come to repentance. And Romans 10, 10 13 says this, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. As Jesus finishes his sermon and then quotes and tries to share with them the ultimate heart of God, the ultimate goal of God is to reconcile lost and fallen man. And whenever he ventured outside of the people of Israel, they really got offended. Is it possible that we could find ourselves in that situation? So often it seems like we reach out to people that are like us. 
racially, financially. You know, if a person is really down and out, we'll pray that somebody goes and shares the gospel with them, right? But maybe God intended for us to do that. Maybe God intended for us to not be so arrogant and prideful because of our salvation that we overlook the needs of others. Maybe sometimes the gospel is supposed to be uncomfortable as we carry it to and fro. It was certainly uncomfortable. Do you remember even from the gospel accounts about the Samaritans, the Jews would not even go through Samaria. Lord forbid that they would touch some of those Samaritans and be ceremonially unclean. But Jesus says something really cool. He says, I must go to Samaria. There's a woman there that's been divorced multiple times, and she's actually living with somebody that's not even her husband. I must, I must speak to her. What an example given to us. So not wanting that Jesus, is not the Jesus they were seeking, is not the word they wanted to follow, but it's really not the work they were really, really, really willing to accept. Matthew and Mark comment on this same sermon and they comment on the unbelief of those who heard the sermon. And they're very much sharing with us consequences of unbelief. There's a consequence that comes with unbelief. It says Jesus couldn't do a mighty work there. I like, I think it's Mark that says, except for heal a few sick folk. Jesus was restricted because of the lack of faith and belief that the people were demonstrating in him. I'm going to kind of move to a moment of prayer and invitation in a moment. But as we contemplate these three things about Jesus, I would really like to us conclude this, that Jesus alone is enough. Whether I die a billionaire or whether I die the poorest person in the world, Jesus is enough. Whether I live to be 120 or, let's see, I'm 53 now, or this is my last year, Jesus is enough. Whether I hurt and in pain, Jesus is enough. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong. There are principles given in this word that make us wise in the salvation, and can we, we can live a very wise life unto God. We can be filled with his knowledge and live in ways that he honored. But Jesus said this, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We can suffer consequences. The peace that is given to me is the fact that regardless of what happens to me, it has been ordained by a holy God who is allowing it. And the goal is for his glory and for my good. Would Jesus actually send me through a time of suffering if it meant at the end of that suffering I would be more like Jesus? Yes, he would. He absolutely would. Jesus is enough. Here's another thing. His word is enough. His word is enough. Trust him enough to follow his word and allow it to conform your life to be more like Jesus' life. Don't walk out bitter. Don't walk out, well, I'm never going to do that. If you're a believer, you can do that for a little while, but I'm going to tell you, if you're a believer, God will take you to the woodshed. He will get your attention. It's best just to go ahead and say, God, just like a child, don't try to hide it from your parents. Guys, they know. They know. Just repent 
experience forgiveness that God is willing to offer, and then continue to walk in ways that honor Him, and embrace the mission call to carry the gospel to not only your neighbor, to even to other parts of the world. And don't give a second look at who they are or what they are. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. Would you stand and we'll pray real quick? Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I, I thank you for this text. And Lord, uh, I, I know we, 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 we drifted a little bit probably from what Luke intended. But God, my concern is, as we look at this first century synagogue, and here Jesus, the Messiah, their long-awaited Messiah, stands before them, reading this Messianic text, and then there proclaims that the acceptable day of the Lord is here. I have come. And Lord, to hear from his own people then... Um, a voice of rejection, uh, a, a critical voice. And then as you continued on uh, sharing uh, the implications of your word and, and, and the mission to carry the gospel and how God, even in the Old Testament, among these two prominent prophets were sent to Gentiles even while there were Jewish folks hurt. Lord, I know that hurt a, 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 a introverted congregation who was only concerned about them and those that were in their congregation. But God, your love and your burden and your concern goes far beyond that. And like in the Old Testament where you did such miraculous things to try to draw attention to yourself and redemption, Father, today you've tasked those of us who have been redeemed to go out and share the gospel. Lord, let us not be found disobedient in that area. Lord, let us take what we hear week after week as our pastor studies and shares with us. Lord, take it as words of love from you and conform. Lord, knowing that when we're obedient to you, God, we experience peace. And Father, we long to be an obedient people to experience even your power in our presence. Father, knowing that this first century synagogue missed so much that they could have witnessed so much power they could have just experienced in their own presence had they only believed. Lord, let us not be found there. For that one tonight that may not know you and, Lord, has never really repented of their sin, Father, either in the next few moments or even after the service, might they share that with me. God, let us be a people committed to your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good, Sam.